Amen. Amen. Stay standing as we read uh, from Matthew chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 21. Uh, we're going to read 21 verses at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12. Um, and so if you would, uh, stay standing. Uh, our, our brother Mike, who was supposed to read for us this morning, um, is, is not with us this morning. Um, and so I'm going to read this. Uh, we're going to read this passage together. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, um, there are some Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, we, we did that. We purchased those uh, so that everyone would be able to have a copy of the Scriptures in their hands. Um, and we very uh, strongly encourage and recommend you um, have, have some, sort of, uh, some sort of copy of the Scriptures. I've heard some people say, open your Bibles or turn them on, um, whichever, whichever one works. And so uh, we're going to read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. In those Bibles, it's on page 816. The word of the Lord reads, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath." Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you um, that though um, all kinds of things around us may crumble and all uh, kinds of things may fade away, uh, that your word attests about itself um, that it will not, um, that your word will go out and it will accomplish all that it is set forth to do. And so, Lord, uh, may we see um, that today your word, uh, by your spirit, um, desires to do something within us. 
help us by your spirit to respond um, and to hear and to be attentive to that. Uh, May your spirit do the work that the spirit does in each of our lives today, and that is to convict, um, that is to give us um, the truth about who Christ is um, and who you are um, and about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And I pray today that we would be greatly encouraged to the beauty of who Christ is, for that is why Matthew has written. We pray these things in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Thank you for, for being with us today. It is, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit energetic today. I'm fired up for a lot of reasons. Uh, it's, a, it's a great blessing um, in many ways uh, to you and to myself uh, that I have not preached in four weeks. Uh, which is a, a beautiful thing. Um, and so I got a lot of catching up to do. Um, th- th- one of the reasons why that's a beautiful thing is because being such a, a young, newer church, um, more on that in just a moment, uh, the, the, uh, the fact that we have men here in this congregation who are able to, to come up here and to preach is just a profound blessing. Um, we're, we're a much smaller church, and oftentimes we get calls from larger churches who are like, can you send someone to preach? And most of the time we say, yes, we do. Um, and it's just a, a really great blessing from the Lord. Um, speaking of kind of our, our, our young life, it was actually uh, five years ago today um, that we launched as a church. Crazy, huh? Um, and then six years ago, really this season in the fall, uh, when Grace Harbor Church was planted. Um, and so it's amazing that five years ago today, uh, the first Sunday of October, uh, we had our first uh, real kind of launch of a service. We kind of pegged it as a launch. I don't really know why we did that. We probably wouldn't do it the same, but we did it, and the Lord was good, and he was faithful. And uh, at the end of this month, on October 29th, uh, we will have a family Sunday where we celebrate um, six years as a church, um, where we introduce to you new covenant members, um, and, and I think we've got, we had like 10 babies born like in the last few months. And so uh, we'll bring new babies up in front of you, commission parents um, in the ways um, uh, to instruct their children in the ways of the Lord, um, and just very exciting uh, to be able to do that. I'm also energetic, a couple reasons, and then we'll get straight to the text. Uh, had a great win yesterday if you're a Sooners fan, and it is the, it's, the, it's the start of the NBA season. So if you know me, those are big deals, and so i um, looking very forward to that. Uh, so now that I have you completely distracted, um, we are going to dive into this text uh, where Matthew presents to us more of the glory um, and the beauty of our Lord Jesus. Um, and it is a beautiful thing. In fact, we come to this text and we come away from it asking the question, who is Jesus? That's what Matthew is answering. He is, he is telling the world through, an account of his, through, through his account of the gospel who this Jesus is. And, and if you missed last week, I just can't help you very much. Kevin did a great job kind of catching us up, letting us know who Matthew has presented Jesus as. And by the way, more than that, who God the Father has presented to the world his son is. Um, and he's not just one aspect that we like. He is a beautiful, just, you've seen those mosaic windows of, of, of all kinds of work and power that Jesus performs. And so Matthew's gospel opens with clearly defining who Jesus Christ is. And that is Matthew's point in this text as well. So Matthew opens the book, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. 
And then Matthew does not stop that theme. He continues to go and say, here is who else Jesus is. Here is who he is. And so here's something very important as we jump into this text today. Um, and, and, and I know us. I know our culture. Um, and and this, is, this can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. But we don't find any direct commands in this text. Maybe you're thinking, I'm going to learn today about what God wants from me on the Sabbath so I can keep those rules really well. Well, we don't find any direct commands. And if we skip too quickly to the application for ourselves and what we must do rather than who Jesus is, we will miss an astounding invitation to believe and to submit to who Jesus really is. And that is, that is enough in itself, my friends, to see the glory and to behold who Christ is. In fact, that's, therein lies the application. I'm giving you the application up front, to behold and believe who Christ is. And so when we come to a text, especially like this one that has ex- explicit, uh, this is a fancy word, decalogue, which is just a, a fancy word for the Ten Commandments. When we come to a text like this that, that explicitly refers to the Ten Commandments or a broader reference to the law, it's important in our study of Matthew to remember what Matthew 5.17 says um, and have in our minds where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so remember that. Uh, if you want to walk away with something today, Jesus has not and will not abolish the Sabbath. In fact, we're going to talk about that here in just a moment. In today's text, Jesus is not doing anything to diminish God's law about the Sabbath, but to clarify it and to, and to make a claim about, about himself in regards to the Sabbath. One of my kids' favorite books, let's kind of talk about the Sabbath for a minute. One of my kids' favorite books, and if you... Uh, if you're, if you're uh, I don't want to say if you're old in here, but if you're old in here, many of your, one of your favorite movies and maybe one of the most memorable tones, just beg your pardon for a second, you know that tone? Anybody? Chariots of Fire is a story about who? Eric Liddell, or Little, how do we say it? Eric Liddell. One of my kids' favorite stories to read, we have this series of, of children's books that kind of highlight key figures throughout history. And one of those books is a story about Eric Liddell, um, who, uh, who was an athlete, um, the subject of Chariots of Fire, and the Olympic runner for the British back in like the, I don't know, 40s, 50s, or 60s, one of those times. I was not yet here. So um, the story uh, tells, the story that, that me and my kids read about tells of Eric and his, and his parents who were missionaries uh, to China and, the, and his family's commitment to the Lord, uh, their, their unwavering commitment to the Lord. And so after years of training uh, for the Olympics um, and, and after the Olympics were set to take place in Paris, um, Eric was informed that the race that he had been training for, the 100-meter dash, would be held on a Sunday. And Eric said, I will not race on a Sunday. And so the only option for Eric was to essentially register and qualify for a different race, one that he had not even trained for. And this race was the 400-meter race. Um, as you can tell, I'm not much of a runner, um, but I do know that 400 meters is more than 100 meters. And I would be dead on both. But Eric Liddell, um, due to his commitment to the Lord, decided, I am not going to run on a Sunday. I will, I will uh, 
sign up for this other race, and he ran the 400-meter race and won the gold medal. And so as we come to Matthew 12, and we read about the Sabbath, um, remember that one of the, the main questions that we may have is, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Do I need to uh, call and cancel all my appointments on Sundays? Well, we're not going to get there yet. We're going to see first and foremost what the point of this text is. And remember, essentially, that is to see the beauty and the power and the majesty of our Savior. And that's a very beautiful thing. And so as we come to Matthew 12, remember that Jesus, it's been, it's been a long time since we've been in the text of Matthew because we took this summer in Psalms. Um, and so if you can remember way back in the spring, uh, we, we ended in the, at, the, at the end of Matthew chapter 11. And so remember that Jesus has just given this invitation um, to, uh, of rest in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. It is no accident that chapter 12 um, opens with this exchange about the Sabbath. Um, it's kind of hard for us reading our modern translations of the scriptures to come to the end of chapter 11, take a few months off, and then jump into chapter 12. But remember, um, the, the way that the Bible was written was as one continuous message. This gospel account was one continual account, and there would have been no, no break in the minds of the original readers. It would have been this account presented to the people of God um, in, in this time, which is why verse 1 of chapter 12 opens with what three words? You got your Bibles open? Just make sure. Just make sure. It's three of like the most simple words in the English language. What we got? At that time. At that time. And so we go back and we see what time it was. And it was the time where Jesus is extending the invitation to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then what a beautiful transition to this chapter as we talk about Sabbath. As we talk about the Sabbath. So there's two other, this is something that I always like to see when I'm studying the scriptures. There's two other gospel writers who include this account in their writing, and that's Mark in chapter 2, verse 23, and that's Luke in chapter 6, verse 1. And the Bible has much to say about the Sabbath, but the issue in this text is that the, the Old Testament does not have as much to say about the Sabbath as the Pharisees do. The Pharisees seem to have a lot more to say about the Sabbath than God. Now, that doesn't mean in a qualitative sense, because what God has spoken about the Sabbath is of highest quality, and the Pharisees think that uh, more is more, right? They do not agree that less is more. And so the Pharisees have a lot more to say about the Sabbath than the law even does. And so we're not going to spend a great deal, a great deal of time on this, um, but there's three things I want us to see about the Sabbath from the Old Testament that are significant. The first thing to notice is that the Sabbath predates the Ten Commandments. That the Sabbath predates God's law to his people um, in, while they're in captivity, as they're coming out of captivity. Sabbath is present in the creation account. You can find it in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Um, and so the Sabbath is not a punishment. It's not a consequence of sin entering the world. It is something that the Father himself instituted, by the way, not because he was tired. God does not grow weary. God is not a God who grows tired, but rather to mark the end of his work, to say it is finished, it is complete. I am satisfied with how things are. And so Sabbath is to be seen in this way as natural, 
as natural. And even, it, it, hang with me here, and I'll explain this more in just a little bit, and even part of God's moral, natural law, what his law to all mankind is. And so secondly, the Sabbath command does come to the people of God in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 after sin has entered the world. And so now he's communicating to his people on the basis of they have been separated from him because of their disobedience and their sin. And so after sin has entered the world, in order to allow them to trust God for their provision and to reflect on who he is as creator. What a beautiful truth. And thirdly, that's not all the Sabbath that the Bible has to say about the Sabbath. Another very important component that we see about the Sabbath in Deuteronomy chapter 5 is that it has a redemptive aspect. That it's not only God stating who he is as creator and all creation is good, and it's not only God speaking to his people saying, remember that I am the creator and remember that there is something between us, but Deuteronomy chapter 5 the people of God are instructed to remember the Sabbath, not only for them to trust God for today and the future, but to look back on his deliverance of them in the past. That's the connection to the Sabbath in Deuteronomy chapter 5, to remember that God brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so God has created the Sabbath purposefully, and he has created it pre-fall of man. Mark's account includes Christ's words that the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Now, just notice what this says. It does not say that the Sabbath was made or created for Israel, does it? No, it does not create it. It was just for God's people. No, but for all mankind. In God's creation, God created for all men, for the good and the flourishing of humanity, the command to rest, the command to take a break. Now, from there, it's important for our understanding of this text that the Old Testament simply doesn't give clear instruction um, on what constituted work. It, it just, it, if you're looking for those answers, uh, the Pharisees would be great friends of yours because they can, they can tell you and make all sorts of inferences. But the, the Old Testament actually does not give a whole lot of clear instruction on what constituted work or specifically what was lawful to do and to not do on the Sabbath. In fact, in the whole Torah... The first five books of the Bible, there is only one work, there is only one work activity explicitly prohibited on the Sabbath, and that's found in Exodus 35, and then we see a punishment in Numbers 15, and that was kindling fires, collecting wood to, to kindle a fire. Did you get that? That's Bible trivia. What's the one, what's the, that, that's, a, that's a great Bible trivia for you advanced scholars. And so... <coughs> And you, for you campers, do not kindle, do not kindle wood. Um, I'll be in the hotel so, uh, while you're out there doing the fire thing. Um, and so here's, here's the thing. Here's what we learn about the Pharisees. It is this vagueness, or, or maybe we could call the Bible's silence, the Old Testament silence on this, that drove the Pharisees bonkers. <laughs> they could not tolerate or stand the fact that they were not given this list. Any, any list people in here? I know some list people because I get texts from you all the time. Um, I know some list people. And I love you in Jesus' name. You, you got, you, you're a list people. The Pharisees, I'm not calling you a Pharisee, but they just, you, you got something in common with these people. I got lots in common with the Pharisees, by the way. Uh, but one thing that you may have in common with them is they just loved the lists. They loved the rules. They loved, just tell me what I need to do. And if it's not there, we'll make sure to add it. We'll make sure 
it, it is there. And so this vagueness and this silence around what constituted work on the Sabbath drove them bonkers, leading them to add all kinds of laws on top of the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, this is the, the irony of this, of this text and of so much of what the Pharisees taught. The Pharisees had taken the Sabbath, a day that was created by God and intended to provoke rest and freedom and worship in a creator God. And, and the Pharisees made it yet a day of constant burden and more exhaustion just piling more and more things. And so this ought to bring great clarity to the invitation of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Now we see the reason why Jesus goes from there, come to me, all who are weary, to this Sabbath conversation, because the Pharisees have piled up all of these things to create in these people a day of exhaustion when God is the, is the great sovereign creator of this day to provide rest and worship and freedom of Jehovah. And so that's the context of verses one through two. Let's read that. I forgot to read that. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so it wasn't necessarily what the Pharisees were doing. It was when they were doing it on the day of the Sabbath. And so then we're going to read verses 3 through 7. Let's read. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So throughout all of Matthew, throughout all of Matthew, we have seen a Jesus who is so gracious and compassionate towards the penitent and to those who realize their need of a savior from their sin. But Jesus reserves his most stinging rebukes for those most overtly religious yet fail to live in the reality of what they acknowledge with their lips. And so Jesus is so ready and so prepared for, to, to show mercy to those who see their need. Yet to those who are the religious, Jesus offers some pretty stinging comments, as we will see only ramp up throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel. So Jesus says, in essence, to these people here in verse 3 through 7, okay, you want to play the Old Testament game? We'll play the Old Testament game. You know, you know that, guy's like, all right, we'll, I'll, come to you, I'll come to your side. I'll play, I'll play that Old Testament game. By the way, Jesus loves the Old Testament. Jesus loves it. Matthew loves the Old Testament. Um, there, uh, I, I saw somebody recently say that um, if you unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, it's because you don't understand the New Testament. Jesus loves the Old Testament. And we ought to love the Old Testament too. In fact, despite what so many of us just have heard, the, the Bible even talks about loving the law of the Lord. It is good. It is right. It is holy. It is pure. And so Jesus says, you want to play this Old Testament game? I'll, I'll play that game. And then Christ offers three responses. Uh, he, he refers to three key Jewish figures in this text. If you see, he refers to David. 
Um, and then he refers to the law or the priests. And then he refers to the prophets. And so, man, he's covering the spectrum here. He's saying, all right, let's take David. All right, let's take the priest and the temple and the, and the, and the law. And then let's take even the prophets. Uh, remember, all things that Jesus didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. So first he refers to David. And this instance of David eating the, the bread of the presence with his men is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And so what was prohibited in this instance that Jesus is referring to uh, was not a Sabbath law, but a law that reserved the bread only for the priests. Only the priests could eat of this bread. And so I, I believe it's where David's running from Saul and he's just kind of on the run, and he's hungry, and he comes in to these priests, and he asks them a question that normally, based on the law, they'd have to say no to. But Jesus points to this instance of what seems to be a breaking of the letter of the law in order to uphold the law's spirit. And, and Jesus is going to refer to that over and over again, that it's, it is lawful to do good. We are to do good on the Sabbath. And so if we keep the law, but we are actively harming and doing bad to people, you're not upholding the true spirit of the law, although you may be maintaining the letter of the law. And he's going to kind of reinforce that over and over again. Well, then Jesus addresses the law. He addresses the priests. And so Jesus then, they're, they're in, uh, or have you not read in the law, how on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. So Jesus then moves on to this example of priests within the temple. To put it as simply as I can, priests worked on Saturdays. <laughs> they worked on the Sabbath. Um, and, and all the pastors in the room said amen, right? Uh, you you, know, you kind of know how that, that is. Whereas most people's work week began to wind down as the weekend approached, the priest's work only ramped up. They were in the temple. They were preparing things. Um, and, and there were preparations to be made before and on the Sabbath that God did require. God required these things. And so what Jesus is saying here is, first of all, just notice the stinging nature of Jesus' words to these Pharisees. Have you not read David? <laughs> They're like, of course we've read David. He's like, well, then you don't understand. Have you, have you not read the law? They're like, of course we've read the law. And so Jesus is making examples of these two things, of the of the. Of, the, of David and of the priest, and according to the Pharisees' requirements, according to their own standards. Jesus is just playing by their rules. So not only is he coming to their field, but he's playing by their rules. Anybody seen the Sandlot? Everybody seen the Sandlot movie? Uh, the Sandlot boys, they head over to the preppy boys' field. They plan on their field by their rules. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is greater than Ham, the Ham Porter, the big Ham Porter. He's greater than that guy. Some of you just have no idea what I'm talking about, but we'll have a movie day sometime. Jesus goes to their field, and he plays by their rules, and he plays by their standards. And so Jesus is simply applying the standards that they have brought to him and say, okay, if, if this is your standard, then David's guilty of breaking the law by eating the bread, and so are the priests who are supposed to be holy but are preparing the temple as God has required them to do so that the people of God could have their sins atoned for. And so, man, their heads might be spinning, <laughs> It wouldn't be hard to envision the Pharisees at this point hearing Jesus' words and saying, yeah, David did do that. The priest did do that. Good point. But that's David and that's the priest. Wait a second. Who are you? Who are you? Who do you think you are to bend these rules then? And then what Jesus says in verse 6 would have lit their hair on fire. Look what he says in verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. What Jesus says here is intended to communicate to everyone who hears that he is greater than David. He is greater than priests. He is greater than the temple. He is the true temple. 
Christ is the temple, who he will later say about himself will be destroyed, but in three days will be raised up. You know what that means, right? One day he'll be crucified, and yet will be resurrected. What a beautiful truth. So Jesus is saying, I am Lord of David. I am Lord of the priest. I am Lord of the temple. I am the true temple. And so Jesus is interpreting all of the Old Testament for these religious scholars. These were the guys that were supposed to know this stuff. And Jesus is like blowing their minds. And, and it's important to know that Jesus is no uneducated carpenter here, right? Like he is Lord. He is one with the Father. He is the Son of God, the author of the Word. This, this all sets itself up, by the way, if we're looking forward and not just back at the text, if we're looking forward into the text and later of Matthew chapter 12, this sets up for us the upcoming indictment from the Pharisees that Jesus is committing blasphemy. And just a little bit, next week, we'll see that, that, uh, that not in just a little bit, we're not going to get all the way there, uh, Jesus will address that, that, that they blame Christ of committing blasphemy. And Jesus turns on them and says, you're committing blasphemy, you're committing blasphemy. And so Jesus has taken these guys to school on their own King David, their understanding of the law and the priest, and now to put a bow on all of this Old Testament interpretation, Jesus then applies this whole situation to the prophet Hosea, their prophets, the prophets. And so look what he says about Hosea, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. His reference to Hosea is intended to push the reader to see that the law's letter is but a road to the law's spirit, to do good and to love God and to love our neighbor. And he says, if that road doesn't lead to that, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of the law of God, which is a means to get to God's end of loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. And then verse 8, just another, just another punch. Verse 8 says, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus then refers to himself as the Son of Man, which ought to bring our, mind, uh, bring our minds to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I'm going to read that. It ought to bring our mind. This isn't Jesus necessarily quoting this, but it, it's, it's, it is uh, certainly consistent. I saw, the night I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is the son of man who is predicted to come and to rule in power and to have dominion. And Jesus is saying that that's not, that's not only true of some future explicitly eschatological time, but now. He's reigning now. Christ is reigning now. He is Lord of the Sabbath, a day, again, that was intended in Deuteronomy to point to the, redeem, the, the redemption of God's people, Jesus is now saying, I am that redeemer. I am that deliverer. You, you have used the Sabbath, 
the way that God has intended to recall God's deliverance from the people of slavery of Egypt. And Jesus is now saying, I am that redeemer and that deliverer who brought you out and who will bring you out of sin through faith in what I will do at the cross and victoriously in the grave. So then we look at verses 9 through 14. We'll fly through this. Jesus went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So Matthew goes on to give another account, and this time of healing. So the two questions present in this text today are, is it lawful to work on the Sabbath, and is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus' ultimate answer in verse 12 is, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. (laughs) That's the way that he answers. It's lawful to do good. And all that Jesus does is good. Amen? Let's let's say that again. All that Jesus does is good. Amen? Amen? All that he does. The law is intended to be a means of good to God's People. And so Jesus says this after healing a man's hand, which also was prohibited by Pharisaical law that stated that only in cases of extreme or life-threatening danger, it is supposed that only in cases of extreme and life-threatening danger could something be dealt with. And so since this was just a withered hand, the Pharisees thought, this could probably wait till tomorrow, right? Check in with Jesus back tomorrow, so the Pharisees thought. And so Jesus then seems simply to appeal to the humanity and the, and the, maybe the emotion of, of those who were there, um, of his audience, that man is of more value than an animal. Jesus just very simply asked the question, is a man not more, more valuable than a sheep? Is a man not more valuable than an animal? So neither rescuing an animal nor doing good to mankind was ever prohibited on the Sabbath in the law of God. But what Jesus is also doing in this healing is confirming and furthering what he says in verse 8. That Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And in that, we can assume that Jesus is Lord of all. And we see that in his ability to heal the lame. To heal those who have been chronically damaged and chronically ill. In, in all of those things. And so Matthew and Jesus are showing us that the lordship of Jesus is really good news. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He says, that's good news because the kind of Lord I am is one who is merciful, one who is a merciful chosen servant. By the way, there is a way to Lord uh, wrongly. We can see that in 1 Peter 5, 3. There are ways to lord over people in domineering and bullying ways. And Jesus says, I am the kind of Lord who it's not bad news for you that I'm Lord. It's really good news that I'm Lord because I will heal you. And I am the merciful chosen servant of Isaiah. Um, And so Matthew, Matthew goes to great lengths to show us in these final verses. Let's read 15 through 21. So Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. 
Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Matthew here is quoting Isaiah. By the way, um, if, if one thread to pick up on through the gospel of Matthew, Matthew loves Isaiah. Not Isaiah George. Uh, he doesn't know you. Jesus does. Um, Matthew loves Isaiah, and he loves using Isaiah's words in his gospel account. This, not to sound tacky, but like Kevin said last week, so I'm blaming Kevin. Uh, but like Kevin said, Matthew is the most Jewish of all the books. And so Matthew loves to draw from those who the Jews would have been mostly acquainted with. And so this is the, I believe this is the, the fifth time that Matthew has quoted Isaiah. And he does it in the very first chapter. He starts in chapter one. He does it again, I believe, in chapter three. Um, and then in five or six, and then eight, and then here. He uses Isaiah's words five times in his gospel. Why? Why does he do that? Let me just tell you, let me, let me just re, help me, let me, let me help you um, reaffirm your confidence in the scriptures. It's not an accident. It's because if we unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, we cannot understand the new. We can't. The gospel writers never did that. They never just presented one angle of who Christ was. They said, no, the whole world, the whole creation has been speaking to who this man is, and here is who he is. And so the reason why Matthew does this is for the simple reason of showing that Jesus is who they had been waiting for, the fulfillment of their longing and their hope. He is the sufficient king, the savior of the world, the promised holy one. He is the Isaiah 42 and 43 man. That's where Isaiah quotes from, or Matthew quotes from here. And so, church family, as we close, I want to just comfort you and give you great confidence in this, that if what you are expecting from this text or from this sermon, was to hear from me about whether you should keep the Sabbath or whether you ought to feel guilty for watching football today. We'll be doing that in my house. Um, I hope that's not what you've gotten. I hope what we walk away with in this is an utter confidence in who Christ is and claims himself to be. And we have an utter confidence that he is completely worthy of following and obeying with our whole heart, loving with our whole heart. And his power to save and his worthiness. So if you want to walk away with a way of life application, let it be this. Answer the question, who is Jesus? Who's Jesus? What authority does Jesus have in the world and in me? What does it matter then? If Jesus has all authority, like he will say, what does, it, what does it matter? What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over my life? And does Jesus have the final say over all the days of my week, over all the kingdoms and nations in this world? Does Jesus have authority and final say over me and my own heart and those affections, those things that draw me in? And it is this that Matthew wants us to see. Matthew is telling the world who Jesus is. And he's helping the Jews primarily see that. 
but, but don't, do, do not believe the, the, the narrow interpretation of this only being to Jewish people. There are many Gentile exchanges here so that the world would know, so that Jesus would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, that the nations, that the Gentiles would know, the ends of the earth, all of those places. It is this Jesus that the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And church family, this book, this is how the world knows. This is how we know who Christ is. This is it. Um, I, I don't think that God ever like wrote something in the dirt in the last hundred years about what you ought to know about Jesus. No, we have a book. We have a sufficient book. We have a book who paints for us a comprehensive view of who Christ is. And so this is how the world knows who Christ is and how God has chosen in a beautiful way to reveal to us the Savior, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have shown us, shown us who your son Jesus is. Thank you that this, that this message um, from, the, from the moment it was written, uh, from, the, from the moment that Christ came to this world, Lord, that it completely changed the world. It completely changed everything. And so, Father, may we this morning see who Jesus is just as the Bible presents him to be. May we trust him. May we follow. May we obey. May we do that which you are calling us to do because when you save us, you give us your Holy Spirit. And we pray that, Lord, we would worship in response to what you have accomplished for us through the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus, our Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.